Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I am here with my RBP colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hi, Barney. Hi, guys. Um, we're here to tell you, as usual, about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages this coming week. That includes Mavis Staples, who has a new album out, the B-52s, who are starting a tour that's going to last through the summer, and Bob Stanley of Saint-Étienne, Bob as writer rather than as pop star, and Mark will tell us about the highlights among all the pieces that have gone into the library this week. Sure will. We're going to start with the great Mavis Staples. Her new album is called We Get By. It's produced by Ben Harper. This is, I believe, her something like 16th solo album. Wow. She's the kind of grande dame, <laughs> is she not, of sort of gospel soul, yeah, yeah, really. That, that's if, that's, if that really is a sort of legitimate category. Mark, you must have been listening to oh. the Staple Singers for Forever. at least three weeks, for at least as three John Mendelssohn would say. <laughs> I was a huge fan of both Staple Singers and I'm a pretty big fan of her as a solo singer. I mean, her, her solo up has been variable. As it happens, one of these pieces is very much about her album she did with Prince, which yeah. I think is one of the least good records she really? ever made. Yeah, I, ju- I just don't think it was a good match sonically or huh. feel-wise or anything Interesting. like that. She is very up for it, and she sure. she still talks about it yeah. in, in great terms. I mean, I've never listened to it, but I read the piece on it, and yeah. it made me want to go and listen to the album, because yeah. she's so positive about it, and I, talks I, about how much Prince kind of got her, and how he was trying not to put just himself into it. And It's sad, but it's sad. I don't think Prince was often very good as a producer of outside artists. I think his own musical personality is so strong mm. that it can but sort of yeah, stamp itself all over. That. We should say that the piece in question is a Paolo Hewitt piece from NME in 1989. And, yeah, she talks quite a lot about the little purple fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Very fondly. I mean, I, yeah. I've, again, I've read more recent interviews and she still talks enormously fondly of them. So, you know, if she enjoyed the process, that's great. I'm um, going back to the stable singers themselves. I guess I started listening to them in the mid-70s. You know, after that, they'd had their hits. Their, their hits, as we said, they had in America. They really didn't do much at all in this country. Mm-hmm. So 1972, uh, with the, with the sort of two huge uh, hits uh, uh, that uh, most of absolutely. us know. I mean, one of the things I, I love about it, you know, I'll Take You There, is, is such a great song. And about a month or so before the Staples went to Muscle Shoals Sound to cut that stuff, they had been recording with Jimmy Cliff. He had been doing an album, and they had obviously spent a whole bunch of time listening to reggae, which they probably had no awareness of whatsoever. And I'll take you there. The, it's basically Liquidator, mm. very slightly regrooved. Yes. Harry J. All Stars Liquidator. Yes. It's got exactly the same bass line, pretty much. And it's marvellous. I mean, it's, it's yeah, just it's fantastic wonderful stuff. Piece of music. There's such a fascinating family really yeah. because they the stories span so many eras yeah. and so many genres they they've sort of leaked into the whole history yeah. of american popular music Absolutely. in quite a unique way quite and you've got some like pop staples who i mean they're a gospel they started off and yeah, to some extent remained a gospel group but he was utterly a blues guitar player he hailed from from mississippi yeah. delta uh, and knew charlie patton yeah uh, he taught, learned guitar indeed from charlie patton. yeah, his, yeah and his, i his, think his, you're right his style and and he never denies his love of the blues in interviews he's you know he 
they came up at a time when there was a rigid separation between gospel music and the blues. Mm. Um, that went through right up to, really, Aretha Franklin broke those walls down in the very early 70s with Amazing and Grace. And Sam Cooke, of course. Sam, yeah. Well, no, Sam Cooke didn't break those walls down. He m- moved across and was condemned for it widely in the church. Yes. Oh. You know, I mean, it was, a, it was a hard thing to do. So the fact that the Staples managed to sort of both do secular records, yeah. even though their secular records were... Not, not that secular, really. They were all calls to some sort of enlightened state of, you know, spirituality. Although, I mean, they, they were pretty widely criticised in the church when they started doing the more political stuff after they met Martin Luther King, and mm. it wasn't that it was they were sort of accepted for crossing over necessarily straight away. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, but the, I think they just always had this slightly odd anomalous position, which no yeah, one I else really, ha- really, r- really had. It, I mean, it's worth pointing out that they were adopted by the sort of Newport Folk Festival community. Well, on, on, on which note, it's not on Spotify, but it's definitely on YouTube. There's from, I think it's a double or triple album live at the Newport Festival, and they get to do three numbers, and there's one song in there, You're Gonna Break My Heart. It's electrifying. It's absolutely electrifying. Mm. One of the great stories about the Staple Singers is, you know, they they started covering Bob Dylan songs and so forth in the 60s. They played Newport. And indeed, the story is always that young Mavis had a bit of a fling with Bobby (laughs) Dylan. Bobby Um, Dylan. uh, Who was very keen on her. But I think she kind of pulled... She says somewhere that she kind of pulled back from the relationship because she wasn't sure it would go down very well in the sort of (laughs) gospel world. I don't think it was about the gospel world. I think it was about the civil rights movement specifically because she didn't feel that as a black woman going out with a white boy, she thought it would take away from the message that they were trying to put out with what they were doing. Uh, That's what she said in in one of the pieces that we've got that's featured this week, Uh, I'm uh, pretty uh, sure. I I think she has an absolutely unique voice. I mean, I'd say that she's one of the most unique-sounding soul-slash-gospel singers Mm. in the history of the form. No one really sounds like her. It's Mm. interesting, we can listen to people like Candy Statton and Betty Swan and all that, and even... Gladys Knight, and you can see the certain mm. sonic crossover there. She doesn't sound like anyone else at all. She's technically amazing without ever shoving it down your neck. You know, no. um, it's a fab. It's a really gutsy, powerful voice, isn't it? Very deep. Um, she's, she's, she's and, she, rock- and I think she had that voice from when she was like a, almost like a little kid. Yeah, no, you, so you, you listen about you, you listen to the early staples, and the staples were recording very early on when she was still a you know, mm. teenager, and it's the same woman singing. And they went know. on their first big tour when she just graduated high school, and she didn't really yeah. want to go because she wanted to go to college but then she went along anyway yeah. and they were mm. just hugely successful in, yeah. in the gospel so there's the, 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 the biggest of the three free pieces about Mavis slash staple singers is Andrea Lyle's oh. um, account of the whole story really and there's some great there's some great stories in there including this fabulous <laughs> Story when they go to Muscle Shoals and Eddie Hinton, who was, this, who was this, you know, <laughs> yeah. wild man guitar player, songwriter, um, yeah. and and writer, of course, wrote wrote a lot with with Donny Fritz. He comes to the session, and Mavis remembers that Eddie made us a batch of brownies, and I think you probably know where this is going. But the brownies <laughs> were loaded, and Mavis's sister Yvonne was very taken with Eddie's brownies and kept asking for more. Of course, uh, they were hash brownies. Yeah. 
meeting, sort of. <laughs> you, you, would, you would call them, and she was later found sprawled on keyboardist Barry Beckett's piano, too stoned to move a muscle. <laughs> of uh, all people to get stoned, you take on the staple stone. I don't know, I wonder whether Pops uh, helped himself to some brownies. It's uh, Knowing what they're like, I wouldn't be surprised if Pops was someone who smoked a bit of pot in his life. Well, he's gone now, and he can't speak for himself. He can't speak. Uh, um, uh, on which note, also, his solo album, he, he did a really fantastic solo album, only about three oh, or four years Oh, wonderful. Really good record. I love those solo yeah. records. I mean, there is something about Pops, Pop Staples, very sort of downplay vocal style, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. shimmering oh, vibrato style of guitar. Really, really wonderful. Absolutely. And we talked about how he came out as a blues guitar player, but also I'm sure he influenced the Cornell Dupree's of this world. Mm. You know, they must have grown up as guitar players, hearing his stuff on gospel radio all the time, you know. I, I, and this, in a way, you know, he set the tone for southern soul guitar playing. In many ways, I think. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And the, the last of the three pieces is by Amy Linden from The Village Voice in 2001. And this is about Mavis working with Jeff Tweedy on You Are Not Alone. And, I mean, in a way that sort of set the agenda for the Mavis Staples that we know in 2019. Her most recent, her last, yes. She's become this kind of founding sort of godmother figure of, of sort of rootsy American soul, sort yeah. of Americana soul, which I think at times has become a little bit generic. Yes. And the Jeff Tweedy album, I mean, it's it's got its heart and taste in the right place. Is that the one but, which is songs from the civil rights struggle? Not specific. No, no, it isn't. Not which, specifically. Which is that one? Can you remember what the name I of that one I can't remember what that's called. That's, that's what the, Roy yeah. Cuda worked on that one. Right. That is yeah. really good. That carries off the You can trip. see why all these kind of, to put it bluntly, white boys, sort of rootsy white boys, want to work with maybe sure. staples. But I think often it seems to produce... Uh, as I say, a slightly generic yep. thing. And I, I worry, not that Ben Harper is a white boy, but I worry that the new album produced by Ben Harper is going to be more of the same. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's always great listening to Mavis, but in some ways it was more interesting when she worked with someone like Prince because she's sort of been... She's been sort of rather Sorry. type cast. Sorry, yeah, pigeonholed, I think, maybe. No, exactly. I, that, that's, that's a very good point in relation to what I said earlier about not mm. liking it. I mean, my problem is, is just the nature of Prince as a producer yeah. rather than her doing something. In, in, I mean, for example, I really applauded what Bobby Womack did with the Gorillaz guys, with, with, with Damon Alban. Yeah, um, and the solo album uh, that, they, that Damon and Richard Russell produced was, was, was at least half of it was extraordinary. It was really good, and clearly of and by Bobby Womack. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a generic attempt at no, producing... No, it was exactly all electronic. Described. It was all electronic, and it was really successful. Yeah. I mean, I think it worked fantastically well. Yeah. So it can be done. It can be done. I got a story I want to tell so three interesting pieces about one of the great soul-slash-gospel singers, Mavis Staples. The other three offerings on the homepage this week are all pieces by Bob Stanley of yeah. Santa Tien. So this is the ultimate kind of poacher-turned-gamekeeper, <laughs> guy who started out writing for Melody Maker and to some degree for NME, I think he wrote for as well. Actually started for him. The first piece we've got by Bob is the first piece he ever wrote. Really? Um, uh, because he mentions oh. this somewhere. So NME, September 1987, James Brown, who later became the editor of Loaded and is now the editor of 442, commissioned Bob 
to review Johnny Cash at the Peterborough Country Music oh, Festival. <laughs> um, and it's just a nice, it's a nice touch in this review. It's a short review. Bob writes that age has been kind to Johnny Cash. These days, he's looking more like the teddy bear in black. But, <laughs> but don't be fooled. His presence is awesome. His voice sounds like a bar of chocolate with lumps of gravel in it. Fantastic. Which I like. Yeah, yeah I, I remember lovely. reading this piece when, when we posted it and, and, and really enjoying it. Bob Stan is interesting because he's a genuine poacher turned gamekeeper. There have been quite a few people who did well as musicians who had very brief partial careers. Like Chrissy Hind. Chrissy Hind, Patti Smith as well. Yeah. And then there's been some the other way around who were wannabe rock stars and never made Nick Kent be in the obvious case in, case in point. But Bob Stanley was genuinely functioning as a journalist yes. and then genuinely functioned as a musician. You know, and, 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 but, of course, still functions as a writer. Yes, He's absolutely. written. So absolutely. the reason that we're running these three pieces by Bob is that he has a book out called Sleeve Notes, which is essentially um, about the influences and inspirations behind some of Saint-Étienne's songs. Right. But he has, of course, also written an enormous book called Yeah, 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 which, which is an <laughs> epic history of modern pop. He's Not a history on... of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't. Um, and there's a sort of sequel in the pipeline to that. A good writer, really good writer, interesting writer, and, and I think uh, a fascinating musician, there's another piece about the Stone Roses before the really first funny. album has even come out. Wow. So, so this is this is early um, roses, early roses, early roses, and they already reckon they're the best group. Well, oh, so, all... so he asks them, "So you reckon you're the best group in the country?" And they go, "On the planet." <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's just Ian Brown, the singer, but he's already, you know, very big for his boots. A uh, little. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, as it happens, uh, they. Delivered on this on this kind of hubris. I mean, uh, the Stone Roses debut album was a landmark release. Uh, it sure, is thirty absolutely. years old. And interesting, there was a piece by Laura Barton in the Guardian yesterday about what it was like to be a young girl in Wigan when that album came out, mm. and what a sort of. I mean, how it felt like it was just really like four local lads that might have lived across the street yeah. who suddenly were turning into sort of rock. Superstars. I mean, I was always slightly unconvinced by the Stone Roses. I'm sure that's kind of heresy to many. Um, <laughs> I, know, I, I know that our colleague Paul Kelly is a <laughs> is a rabid fan. Yeah. Absolutely, fan of and, Stone and, Roses. and and so are. Uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world think that the Stone Roses' first album is sort of the godhead. Yeah. To me, it sounds like sort of uh, <laughs> 80s birds <laughs> with a kind of Mancunian attitude. And with that sort of baggy drum beat that all these bands had, you know. They had the, their the, moments. The, I mean, Fool's Gold is yeah. fabulous. I mean, I look, the whole Madge thing pretty much passed me by. I mean, it was happened at a time when I was active as a musician, so I was really far too busy with my own stuff to listen to stuff like Stone Roses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's that generic baggy groove. Which they all had. They all had, yes. you know. Whether they were from Manchester or Liverpool, wherever the hell we yeah. were, it was to me it hasn't dated very well. But I kind of get but there are some there what, are some great tracks that came out of that. Yeah, I get I what the roses know, know were if, about. I can, I can see why the music press loved these all these bands, and I'm saying these bands because you know you've got to include Happy Mondays very much in the, sort of the, the pantheon. Mm. Is they made great copy, mm. you know, for mm. journalists they could go up 
take shed loads of drugs with these musicians, you, you know, listen to them telling them they're the yeah. greatest band in the world. Yeah, yeah. Endlessly quotable. And it just really made, made you know, sure. music journalists' jobs very mm. easy. The third of Bob's pieces is much more recent, although it's already 15 years old. It's a piece about sparks, and it's That's got great. some funny yeah. moments. <laughs> he talks, so he's interviewing Ron and Russell. They are over to play Morrissey's Meltdown Festival on the South Bank, and he takes them back to when they first came to London and signed to Ireland and made Kimono My House, etc. tell me who Sparks are? Sparks were, were, this, they were this, this, this very eccentric trick duo they were brothers from well from los angeles yeah, yeah. So, and they signed initially to the bearsville label as half nelson todd rungren produced them but they only really started to make waves when they signed to island records here and they came here and they made their first album and they had a huge hit with a, a record you must have heard jasper this town ain't big enough for the both of us yeah okay yeah. This town ain't big um, enough for the both of us. i think these, these their eccentricity chimed with an english aesthetic in a way that doesn't chime, didn't chime with an American aesthetic, which is why coming here made sense. Uh, yeah. In a way, they were kind of closer to people like Roxy music and so on. Well, so this quote that I pulled out here... Yes, go on, sorry. Absolutely answers to that. The males soon settled into London life. Once in a cinema, a rat ran over Russell's foot. That didn't really happen in Southern California, he says. Or stores closing on Sundays. But we saw Roxy Music and The Suite, who were really good, and we were fans of Indian food. <laughs> so it's, it's a very <laughs> happy, it, happy it, story. It's very nice. I, yeah. I love this. I am a fan of The Sparks, not sort of rabidly, but I did like, had, I bought Kimono My House. Yeah. I also think they've continued to make, you know, genuinely quite interesting music. And they had just released, at this point in 2004, the album Lil Beethoven, which is, which is really, really good. And Lil Beethoven, not a current sort of trap rapper along the lines of Lil Pete. Nice try, nice Jasper, try Jasper, but no, no, absolutely you're right. Back they're, in your box, Jasper. But Lil Beethoven, <laughs> so, so they, they, they're able to play Meltdown and they're going to play the whole of Lil Beethoven, but because Morrissey has requested it, they also played the whole of Kimono My House. I love this. Can I read this last quote? Mm. It's just, I love it. As a bona fide pin-up, Russell wrote a weekly column in the girls' magazine Mirabelle. Heady stuff. Favourite sweets. The pros and cons of pies. Colours, do you like them? By the way, that. anyone listening out there has a big collection of Mirabelles, <laughs> particularly late 60s and early 70s ones. We would love them because some of our writers wrote some really good stuff. Mark wants to find out what the favourite sweets I do. of those and, pop stars were. And, and he wants to make up his mind on whether he likes colours. Yes, this is given that I generally wear some shade of grey or black, this is a, a serious An opportunity. So help us out. Yeah. By sending us your mirror. I mean, it's worth it. They were one of Pop's great oddball couples, weren't they? I mean, Russell the singer had sort of long hair and was quite pretty and sung in this bizarre falsetto. And then sat behind him at a keyboard, very unnervingly, was his brother with very short hair and a bizarre kind of Hitler Hitler slash (laughs) Charlie Chaplin (laughs) moustache. That's right. right. He was the sort of brains of the thing. And they they, they were bizarre. They didn't look related at all. No. You know, no, I mean, although if you put long hair on Rob <laughs> and Sean <laughs> Russell and put a little moustache, you'd get there. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, the yeah. Sparks, we like the Sparks. There's also, we've chucked in a Simon Reynolds piece about Santa Chen, and I think it's just worth saying something about them. 
I'm a real fan. I think Simon was a real fan. He was a colleague of Bob's on Melody Maker. And so Bob and Pete Wiggs and Sarah Cracknell put together this you know, very interesting little kind of almost meta pop group. I mean, to use Simon's famous phrase, record collection rock. And I think you've, you've got, yeah, a I've got a couple of quotes. Of quotes. Here, really, it's, it's a funny piece. Bob just sort of slags off everyone and anything that he doesn't think is great. He says, this is then, 1980, uh, no, 1992. Then there's James Brown, Bob continues. We don't like funk. We don't like slap bass. I can't get into Parliament and Funkadelic at all. It's too prog, too muso. Which I think is funny because it being too muso, yes. if, when they're this sort of meta... 90s. I agree. I think it's it's brilliant. They were really setting out their stall, weren't they? I mean, I loved that first album, Fox Bass Alpha. I thought it was great. And I think they've made, you know, a lot of really classic singles. So so we we, we thoroughly approve of, of Bob Stanley. So Bob's book, Sleeve Notes, out, published by Pomona Books. Mark, tell us about this week's audio interview. Yeah, this is Ira Robbins interviewing B-52's Kate Pearson and Keith Strickland in August 86. It's on the back of their promoting their new album, which was actually recorded the year before and took a long time to finish and come out. Bouncing off the satellites. Bouncing off the satellites. Now... In late 85, I believe it was late 85, Ricky Wilson, who had played on the record, died of AIDS. Mm. And this whole interview has to sort of be taken in that context. It's strange. It's almost like AIDS is the elephant in the room. No one actually talks about it as such. They talk about his death. They don't actually mention why and how he died. Now, this is 86. This is Mm. in the early days of... You know, it's really people only started dying in numbers mm. over the mm. previous two or three was years. One of the early you, music casualties. Absolutely. So it's never discussed beyond the fact that they aren't going to tour. We'll just play a clip now, which is about why they aren't touring this album. <laughs> We're very much a family band. I think we were closer than a lot of bands are uh-huh. with each other. So at this time, it, it would be a very difficult and emotional thing to try to go out and do it again. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it seems absurd to go out on tour and do Rock Lobster without Ricky. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> so, we just we're, we think it's really more appropriate not to, you know. Uh-huh. So as a band, personally, we were all. We broke together, and it was just I don't know, everything was done together. So it's not just can't go out and do it. As if nothing happened. So that 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 that's it. You, you, you know, obviously that that as a band, I mean, they talk about the band as a family. You know, this is a band which grew up in a small university town mm-hmm. in in Georgia, and obviously had an enormous amount of closeness as personalities, which is actually why I think they work so well as a band, particularly some of that early stuff. There's, you see videos of them, and uh, they were very early adopters of video as a medium, uh, and, and they're huge fun. They're lovely in, in many ways. Interestingly enough, you were saying that Keith Strickland's gay too, but not out. He came out many years later, and I mean, Ricky never came out. I mean, in this day and age, it's hard to yeah. believe this stuff, yeah. but so there were two gay guys in the B-52s. Which makes sense know- when you see the aesthetic mm. of the B-52s. Mm. That makes total sense because mm. they are a very camp band I mean they are right down to Kate's beehives and all that sort of stuff it is high camp yeah to me they were a real breath of fresh air yeah. I remember that first I remember Rock Lobster yeah, before great. they before they even had a deal with yeah. Ireland and you know they came out of this very interesting scene in Athens Georgia yeah. as you said college town 
REM came out of there, Pylon, Method Actors, yep. uh, a whole raft of very interesting groups. B-52s and REM were the most successful. Yes. But that first album was absolutely terrific. And Wild Planet, the second album, was also yep. great. By now, by sort of 85, 86, it's become that very kind of me- mechanical yep. programmed 80s pop yep. well, sound. Well, they, they, they talk on the thing about using Fairlight program. No drum, no pro- real drums on this drums. album. Strickland played drums on the first two albums, I yep. believe, and and then stopped. They do talk about how there's a demand for them both to change and stay the same. Mm. They, 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 people are saying, you know, you guys have got to change, and they're saying, but you don't sound like you sounded before. Yeah. You know? yeah. I do yeah. find it odd that using a Fairlight for the drums when the drums add so much energy to the kind of thing that they're, they're doing, uh, and then it, it just sort of sucks it out of it. Yeah, and but it's, the, it's a strange... Everybody view. was doing it. Right, well, but I, I, I was... Recording demos and very first tracks, my band's first album, around 85, 86, and 87. And drum machines have taken over, yeah. you know, because they allowed producers total control over everything that happened. You know, you don't have to have real live musicians in a room anymore. You, pro- stri- you strike track 24 with Simpty Code, you hook up your drum machine to it, it means you can have so much control over what goes down. Now, in retrospect, we all recognised that it yeah. was an absolute dead loss. So much bad music was made. I mean, I love R and B, but R and B really suffered from the introduction of the limb oh, drum. Yeah. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. you know, drum machines can sounding the same as drum, well. Drum machines can be used really creatively and really. Oh, absolutely. You know, that that isn't the issue. I love drum it's machines when but they're used as a replacement for a real drummer. It, it's just stultifying. You have to choose to use it as a sound yeah. that you want rather yeah. than it just being a, a replacement. They were working with Tony Mansfield, as an English producer, yeah. and again, English producers. Love drum machines, love all the technology, love the Fairlight. Um, later on, sure. they love the Syncavia sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah. They kept going for some years after well, this. Well, they're still going. They're still going. Well, they, they, they're, they, they, they're, they're about to start a tour, as yeah. I say, that's going to take yeah. them right through to September. Go, go, going back to the AIDS issue, it's, it's interesting that you know, R doesn't raise it, they don't raise it. It still wasn't something that people felt comfortable talking about in 1986. Well, just death, frankly, well, death, because because sure. Ira doesn't even allude until really towards the end of the interview. He's died. I mean, it, it is the elephant in the room. It no is. one even mentions yeah. that Ricky Wilson had died right. the year before, and it it, it is it, 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 it is it's, it's in there, but mm. it's just literally just like yeah. rushed past, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but you know, AIDS. This is at the time when Ronald Reagan was president, was kind of pretending that AIDS didn't exist. Mm. There was a huge amount of prejudice about people with HIV/AIDS, mm. and I just think—I mean, for a start, that Ricky Wilson only told um, Keith Strickland that he had it. He yes. didn't tell the rest of the band; they didn't know he had it. No. If this interview took place today, that would be the interview. Mm. It would be a yeah. massive discussion mm. about that, precisely that. But 1986, let's talk of, about it. I mean, it's such a huge moment in the B-52 story and it casts such a dark shadow over a band that was about fun and colour and camp and all those things. And they do sound, understandably, rather downbeat in this interview. I mean, you know, it's only a year before. There's a tremendous sadness there. But they're very charming and articulate in the interview. I enjoyed hearing them. I mean, I remain immensely fond of them. 
I do think some their best songs transcend just kind of pop fun or kind of you know egghead pop fun. I'm just curious. Like Fifty Two Girls, I think, yeah. is a phenomenal. I'm song. they're the sort of band that an otherwise very punk orientated magazine like New York Rocker would write about very fondly. In An interview. I mean, they interview. were the darlings of yeah. the New York scene, yeah. is what one forgets. They would come up from Georgia like every other weekend Absolutely. to play hurrahs or yeah. the, the mug club. I mean, they, they were the toast of the town. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Andy Warhol fell in love with them, interviewed them for... You know, they, they, were, they were sort of huge sure. in that scene. Sure. And I think deservedly so. They were a breath of fresh air, one of the best things that sort of new wave ever yeah. produced. So I think that's our first B-52's audio interview and we're, we're delighted to have Absolutely. it on the site. So at this point, Mark, I'm going to ask you to talk us through highlights. Highlights of the what's going mm. on to the library this week. For once, I'm bypassing the 60s, going straight to June 1972. Now, we have two versions of this article on the site. This is Geoffrey Cannon's report slash digression on the nature of the Rolling Stones, slash live review of them at Winsland on the 1972 years tour. Now, we, sometime we've had the Guardian version up. His original version was twice as long. It was also one of the last things he wrote as a music journalist, and he explains in his introduction mm-hmm. why. He says, I picked up the Guardian on 28th of June, excited. Then I saw the coverage. It was full page, but with two other pieces by Leroy Aarons and Robin Denslow. My piece was slashed back to a thousand words. Ethan's pictures were used, big. I was mortified and enraged. This was my gig. The Guardian knew that I had a deal which had enabled my status, the time with Mick and Joe and Derek having confidence in me. The Guardian had never even treated me like this before. That was quits. I gave up on the Guardian and on the advanced pressings, free tickets, press enclosures, access to bands and US coverage gave me, and stopped writing about rock. From then on, I decided editing Radio Times would be enough. It never was, though. And, mm. you know, I mean, the two, they are two completely different pieces. I mean, they, 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 yeah, the, sure. the Guardian butchered his original back so much. And it's actually the original. Why they didn't run it? Two and a half thousand words. It's terrific. Because Fleet Street still didn't take pop music the, that seriously, yeah, even yeah. in 1972. Though Jeffrey reports that, for example, the LA Times would hardly ever touch his stuff. If anything, they'd improve it because they had the best fact-checkers on in the business, you know. He said the Guardian were ruthless with his copy in a way that actually hardly anyone else was. And it's a really good piece. Like I said, it starts with him in New York driving to the airport and, like, on the radio, there's the Rolling Stones, there's the Rolling Stones, there's the Rolling Stones, you know, wherever <laughs> you go. And then he, he takes you into the Winterland and the whole vibe of being there and to watch the bands. Interspersed with bits of an interview with, with Mick Jagger, for example, Mick says, We were recording in this disgusting basement, and the prettiest thing on the wall was a picture of Angela Davis. This is when they're recording Exile Main Street, and the basement is Nullcott. And it just kept on going on in my mind, said Mick, when I asked him about Sweet Black Angel on the new album. As to what she feels when she hears it, I don't know. She might hate it. I hope she doesn't. And it's a terrific broad, expansive piece, which is really about sort of the meaning of the Rolling Stones in 1972. Fascinating. Uh, he's a, it's interesting, Jeffrey comments often that he was a Stones rather than Beatles person back in the day when we all kind of had to make that decision. <laughs> had to make a <laughs> you know, choice. Spurs or Arsenal sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and see, so he was, he was from very early on quite 
completely comfortable. And they were never better live, were they, than oh. in that year? I mean, I think... Uh, um, 71, 72. Yeah, the Ladies and Gentlemen, the Rolling Stones uh, tour film, the music is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I shall read that piece yeah, that's, with it's, it's, avid it's, interest. It's a real good one. Now, this surprised me as, to be fascinated by the next one, which is an interview with Yes's Chris Squire from Melody Maker, Chris Welch in 1974. Yes had won one of the... I think he'd won the best bassist in the... Best MM, bassist in the business. The, Best uh, the user MM, of a Rickenbacker. Uh, yeah, the, in the MM Reader's Poll, you know. But he, he takes us right back to the very formation of the band, which I'd never really read before. He's in a couple of bands which basically all contained members of what became Yes. Um, and he's kind of going on the mark. He says, The second stage of influences came in a mod era with the initial breakthrough of The Who. I went to the marquee every week to hear The Who for a year. That whole era of the Who and the Small Faces was like a second-stage rocket after Liverpool beat groups. The Stones were around, but seemed to disappear from club scene very quickly. But the Who and the action were incredible. I mean, first of all, it's interesting that, that Chris Squire loved the Who, because actually if there's a bass player who influenced him, John Entwistle's probably it. If yeah. you, you, you can hear a lot of the Entwistle energy yeah. and lead line playing. Yeah. And stuff like but it's always just really nice to read about how, where mm. Yes came from, because they sort of seem to fall... Kind of appear fully prog formed yes, in the straight out of the topographic ocean. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, seventy six. An interview with Horace Silver by Brian Casey in yes, the Enemy. And uh, well, first of all, I mean, I, I t- I've said this before. You know, some the, 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 I like all of our writers, but there are some of our writers I love, and Brian Casey mm. is one of them. A couple of nice quotes here. I'm always fishing for different ways to move harmonically. Uh, if I can get from London to Paris by a different route, I'll take it, which I think is just a lovely thing. But I love uh, Brian on Horace. Horace has a light, skippy voice that accelerates, lank hair and a lithe smile. He's built like a wire coat hanger. He's wearing a slate blue corduroy suit, cowboy boots and a red pattern shirt. Horace's body clock, voice gestures, piano playing, spanks along on adrenaline. <laughs> Brian is just such a great writer. He can interview just about anyone, it'll be worth reading. Even he reads like, known. yeah, like a great American sort of hard noir, hard-boiled <laughs> noir novelist. Yeah, yeah the rhythms yeah. of sort of almost Mickey Spillane. But, yes, but, but yeah, with lots great. of references like English musical and things. So it's, it's not like slavish American. No, 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 of no, course. You know, um, great writer. Uh, Horace uh, Silver is an interesting. I mean, I like what he what he says about moving harmonically because as a composer. Yeah. Well, his, his harmonies, there's, there's a lot of parallel movement, so it's great. I'm a big Horace Silver yes. fan, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's worth putting stuff about people like Horace in Rocks Back Pieces Library because he was on that area of jazz which was, was popular. He sold he, you know, yeah. big numbers of records yeah. for Preacher and things like that. Um, he was a big influence on R&B piano players in the 60s. Okay, 1980, Warren Zevon, interviewed by Jim Sullivan. Now, Warren's going through one of his periods of sobriety at this time. I don't know how long this one was. It was a long sobriety, but it was what one might call the white knuckle variety. Yes, and he says, you're real lucky if the gorge rises and the self-disgust gets to a sufficient climax kind of thing where you know that you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't a happy, crappy, recovering (laughs) alcoholic, Uh, is it? um, The thing is that that, that he was recording, writing and recording in Los Angeles Mm. with Los Angeles musicians while doing music which inherently 
subverted the whole antithetical to the whole canyon sound absolutely and so so, so he's got kind of in some of the eagles he's got Glenn and Don from the eagles in on one of the sessions Glenn and Don said well you want us to make fun of the eagles I said, no, I just want you to sing great like you do. I mean, they, they, they're aware that he does sort of mock them, you know, but he, he, wants, he wants those voices. I think they had a lot of time for Zevon. Yeah. I think everybody did. He somehow infiltrated that kind of Jackson Brown world. Yeah. And they all understood that he was sort of subverting it. Yeah. I mean, but they a, really respected well, him as a... I mean, he, I, I think he was a brilliant... Songwriter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I genuinely I like do. him. He's you, way up yeah. there. He's almost like the kind of the L.A. Elvis Costello <laughs> yeah. before before yeah, Costello yeah, yeah, even good. appeared. No, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I like him a great deal. You love him. Mm. Uh, he's written some really fabulous songs, but I like this thing he says here: is, "There's something in my nature that curls my nose up at anything in my work that is saccharine, coy, or clever for its own sake." Thing is that. I mean, we both read the biography of him. And I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yes, the and, and oral it, biography of Warren Seaver. It's a, ha- yes. a hair-raising yes. read. He it doesn't really come is. out of it. Strap yourself in. Yeah, he for doesn't the ride. come out of it very well. I mean, right. he's he's a fairly unpleasant man in many many ways. He treated other people incredibly bad but in his personal relationships very badly. But it, it's a. It's but brutal. everybody forgave him because he, he was, was so, so brilliant, yeah. you know, and. I, there was you know, a huge sort of outpouring of grief when he died. Yeah. That whole kind of LA community, yeah. you know, ca- came together to remember him. And I think, I think he, I think that he will, his reputation will will stand. I agree. I, 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 I think agree. in decades to come, people will look back and say he yeah. was he was one of the great singer songwriters, yeah. one of the most acerbic, and he was absolutely the king of kind of of LA noir. Yeah, yeah, in that, yeah. In that yeah. idiom, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on a couple of years. Smash Hits, 1982. Ian Birch interviewing David Van Day and Teresa Bazaar of Dollar. And this is kind of hilarious. They've got so little self-awareness. David Van Day says, pop stars were dressing more stylishly and they weren't afraid to say that maybe they'd bought a new car. This is, like, you know, it's at 82. It's the start of the new Thatcherite materialism mm. creeping in, you know. And, and suddenly bands are dressing up smarter and so mm. on and so forth. And it's... It, Seemed credited to Theresa Bazaar, this quote, but it may sounds more like Dave Van Day. We're not faces fronting music. We're serious musicians. I mean, you just have to roar with laughter at that. What, 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 Barney, what is your take on Dollar? Well, I love the first Dollar singles that Trevor Horn produced. Yeah. I think they're some of the, the, the greatest things Trevor Horn ever did. So, and in fact, you're delighted yeah. in playing them to me the other day when I went. We were talking I about did. Those Handheld in black and white, give me back my heart, <laughs> mirror, mirror. I mean, I think they're pretty astonishing. Yeah. They, they got adopted. I'm particularly. Paul Morley in the NME adopted. Paul loved them. And it was via that that he got to know Trevor Horn. It was mm. via that that ZTT was set up, I guess. It was, that was part of the start of yeah, the Yeah, I mean, I always felt the dollar records were more honest sort of pop epics than ABC or Frankie yeah, Goes yeah. to Hollywood because uh, actually the reason I liked Dollar was that they kind of were pop puppets. Yeah. Precisely <laughs> aligned with what you're saying about this yeah. place. Moving on, Jeffrey Himes in the Baltimore Evening Sun, revealing a show from George Jones at the Merriweather Post Pavilion, Baltimore. And Loretta Lynn. Well, yeah, but Loretta Lynn gets no. sort of written off in the last in a single paragraph. Okay. Not very good. But he's knocked out by George Jones. And he says, another highlight was his biggest hit, 1980s, He Stopped Loving Her Today. A tearjerker about a broken, deserted man who nursed an obsessive love until he died. 
The band played a quiet, restrained arrangement with harmonica and pedal steel fills wending through the acoustic guitars. Jones redeemed the melodramatic nature of the composition with an immense sense of dignity. So he sang the verses in a reserved, almost confidential whisper and then knocked out the choruses with thrilling power, which is a pretty good description of George Jones in action. We're both big George Jones fans, aren't we? Well, He Stopped Loving Her Today is one of my probably ten favourite yeah. records. Certainly you know, one of my five favourite country tracks ever. He's so transcended the business of country singing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he was really in a, in a kind of class of his own. Yeah. I think what he could do with his voice is so extraordinary. Funny, I, I don't like his up-tempo stuff. But he's a balladier. You know, he, but his ballads, I mean... The, it's but, tears in your beer. The best thing stuff. to do is create a Spotify playlist of the best George Jones ballads, mm. and that keep you happy. He said, I'll love you till I die She told him you'll forget in time As the years went slowly by She still prayed upon his mind I think the last thing I want to talk about is it's hilarious Johnny Cigarette's interview with Bobby Brown in the then-reconstituted new edition from NME in 1996. And this guy, oh boy, I mean, it's just his ego is just stratospheric. We are a group that is beyond compare. Not to the Beatles, not to the Rolling Stones, none of them. We are already well on the way to becoming the biggest group in world history. Stone roses eat your hearts out. It's time the world respected New Edition for their true greatness. We're a group that can't be reckoned with. Not by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, etc. It's the Beatles and the Stones thing again. I didn't keep it in my quote page here, but he also can slags off the Jackson 5, which is pretty bloody rich and he says now look man you got the wrong words in your mouth I never had drug problems never in my life they were just newspaper rumours I mean it's just funny how he says that when he sounds about as coked up as you can possibly sound he does he's absolutely right he sounds like he's absolutely this is cocaine megalomania it's at its worst isn't it I mean it's just shocking to uh, to hear that but but you know it's it's a piece of work and of course this um, new edition revival fizzled well thank you Mark and Jasper and I will just briefly touch on Stuff from the last 20 or so years. Youngsters music. In one second, and I'll just mention... Uh, there's an amusing Tom Cox interview with Marky Smith from 2000, where Smith has just been so irascible. I mean, <laughs> at one point, I think... So he's interviewing Smithy for The Guardian, and he asks Smith, is your girlfriend in the current lineup of The Fall? Because usually Smith girlfriends yes. did end up in The Fall. And he goes, I'll ask you if your girlfriend works for The Guardian. <laughs> it's like, it's like, nuts. <laughs> Briefly, a uh, John Savage piece about Bobby Jameson, who was a fascinating character on the uh, sort of Sunset Strip scene in Los Angeles in the 60s. A sort of cod protest song that Bobby Jameson um, released called Vietnam. Bobby Jameson was was meant to be like the next huge stars come out of LA and it didn't happen for a number of reasons but Vietnam stands as a sort of great garage rock protest That's right, because we, we found in Billboard it's, it was Bobby Jameson. There's those those vast huge he, he, ads. His record like three or four page His ads. record company yeah. were putting in Billboard these 
fold out yeah. three page ads for Bobby Jameson. Yeah. yeah. And none of us but well, you'd heard of him. Yeah. But I'd never I'd never heard of him. And so I said to, I said to Barney, you know, who have you heard of Bobby Jameson? He said, Oh yes, it was you know, this, you know It's one of the great nose diving pop careers. But I mean, his com- company must have thrown cash at his career. They, they did. They, Those they ads were something, me. the fold out ones, right? I, don't know. I think that was even a four page double yeah, double folding. I, I think that's right. Mental. Absolutely um, mental. Twenty eleven Village Voice Maura Johnston reviews a collection of pieces by the great Ellen Willis, who was, you know, one of the first and best female music writers yes. to emerge in the sixties. She was the New Yorker's pop critic, and I bought this collection when it came out. So it is like eight years ago. It's called Out of the Vinyl Deeps. I think it's published by the University of Minnesota Press. It's just fantastic. I mean, she wrote so brilliantly yep. about, you know, people like Janis Joplin. No longer with us, but love to get some of her stuff on Rock's Back Pages we one would. day. I and mean, she's, you know, extremely well regarded by, you know, the American rock I, critic I community. Mean, she, she was one of the pop writers who managed to move across to write about rock, which was hard for anyone, harder still for women to do. Mm. And Lorraine Olsen succeeded in doing that, mm. and a couple of others. And she was a, re- she was, um, a kind of proto-feminist in, yes. in that era, yeah. so there's that perspective well, on York, a lot of... Well, she absolutely New York-based, yeah. completely New York-based. Yeah. In some senses, a sort of archetypal New York feminist yeah. of that era, had late st- 60s, early 70s. She'd have Gloria Stein run for tea sort of thing. Like <laughs> I don't know <laughs> about that. Quite possibly. Jasper, entertain us. <laughs> <laughs> Wyclef Jean in 2001 Adam Sweeting goes to see him at the Brixton Academy I've actually got two Brixton Academy live reviews Adam Sweeting is not terribly impressed by Mr Jean As for his breakdancing display we may never see its like again I hope but despite a few strong songs known to be 911 and It Doesn't Matter Wyclef's jack of all trades approach made the show shambolic sharper focus required or a Fugees reunion Well that's that's a very interesting last line there because Whereas Lauren Hill went on to make a really significantly brilliant record by herself, you realise everyone else in that band, they were only good as a band. They were you know, as good as, their, as a kind of collection. Um, I did love that record 911 that he did yeah. with Mary J. Blige. That well, yeah. was Mary, J., Mary J. Blige. Oh, God, her singing on that is... <laughs> it, it just get, brings yeah. you goosebumps. But it has to be said that what I've experienced of most of what he's done outside of the Fugees, he's a pretty minor talent. He's a good organiser. He was good at putting things together. He's probably quite a good ideas man for the band like the Fugees in terms of discussing just the way in which they're going to go about things but as a musician I think it was very if he'd been a bit more savvy you sort of always feel he could have been like Will I Am or something if if he'd been really hard nosed and commercial about it it just sounds like he was being influenced by all sorts of different things but couldn't really bring it together in a way that made sense as you know Wyclef's thing yo what up this Wyclef with Mary J the girls with my acoustic guitars you know what I'm saying yo Fellas having problems with the chicks. I want you right now to turn the lights down low. Pull your girl up next to you. I want you to sing. And then the second is a live review. As I said, again, Brixton Academy. Caroline Sullivan goes to see Crystal Fighters. And Crystal Fighters are a band that neither of you probably like very much. Or have uh, heard or of. Or have heard of. But I think, uh, maybe I'll play you some, you probably will hate it. It's quite funny. <laughs> he said confidently. Yeah, don't, don't bother, I think it's <laughs> highly likely to be a But, so, Caroline Sullivan went, I think, not expecting very much. The core trio of bassist Gilbert Vierich, guitarist Gilbert Graham Dixon, and 
Any relation of yours, Mark? Ukulele-toting singer Sebastian Pringle? <laughs> well, I mean, f- first of all, the insult being accused of being ukulele-toting. <laughs> and uh, Sebastian, yeah, that, that's rather splendid. Sebastian Is this a cousin Pringle. of yours? It must no, be. No, re- no relation at all. Last week we were talking about you almost ending up in Derek Jarman's film Sebastian. Sebastian. So it's kind of uncanny that it's a week it. later we're talking about this Sebastian Pringle. Extraordinary. I mean, it is absolutely karma and right. sort of... There's no need to be ashamed of your cousin Sebastian. Ukulele toting Sebastian. come clean about him. No, I'd just probably be rolling with laughter about him if he existed. Ukulele In any case, toting. sorry that The we're three not. of them, supplemented here by drums and vocals, are enthralled to Balearic House, Basque Music and High Life. Ugh. Heard on their album Star of Love and Cave Rave, it's a so-so hash evoking Vampire Weekend and CSS, both popular in Belgium. So she obviously doesn't really think they're going to be very good. But, she says, live, however, things are different as they swiftly generate an uplifting party. Personal space is eroded within minutes as neighbours and their beer literally are in your face. But the band's passion can't be faulted. And actually, I've seen them and they were bloody brilliant. They are oh. a fantastic live act. They get everyone just having an amazing time. They're really, really fun. They're musically pretty interesting as well because they play all sorts of different folk instruments including I had to look up how to pronounce this the chalapata which is a wooden you've got bass percussion instrument basically a sort of collection of <laughs> a collection of planks that I think usually two people play it at the same time using sort of really large sort of wood blocks as beaters and bashing it to create this weird sort of shimmering percussive thumping thing it's pretty cool to watch it's quite a sort of physical performance. You should be to watch. a rock writer. <laughs> it sounds ghastly, and also, <laughs> uh, 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 and also, it's the Brixton Academy, which is just the most ghastly venue in London. It has a persistently awful sound. For some reason, the low end of the Brixton Academy is completely out of control. Not helped by the fact that most live sound engineers are useless these days. Live sound is worse oh, than he's on this than one it was again. thirty yeah. years ago. No, this yeah. is a real, real no, big thing. They make the podcast about half an hour. No, no it's just that what they do is they get the biggest kick drum sound they can, and yeah. they just chuck the rest of the instruments over the top willy nilly. You know, I'm mean, loud. Sound engineers are useless. Yeah. And the Brixton Academy is a horrible sounding room, and the audience are vile young people <laughs> talking all the time. You know, it's Why do you say what you really feel? Uh, well, it's great. You know, the Academy is one of my favourite I was lucky enough to see them. <laughs> I was lucky enough to see them uh, in a tent at a festival, and the, the atmosphere of the festival ah. was very sort of sunny party kind of vibe and conducive just, to. It was absolutely. I actually quite like their recorded output as well. I think they've got a kind of an interesting fusion going on between the sort of folk, Did dancey... You find yourself worshipping at the feet of Sebastian Pringle. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Crystal Fighters, live, Brixton Academy. OK. Caroline Sullivan loved it. I thought they were great when I saw them, and I think they're quite fun. It, uh, and I'm going to irritate you by playing them no, no, sometime no, we, soon. We, we, you can give us some edited highlights of a, a one-song playlist <laughs> yeah, on Spotify. And then skip it. I always like reading Caroline Sullivan's stuff. She can write about pop and about young people's music. Anything that about else? wraps it up. Yeah, is, that, is that wrap it up? Thank you very much, Jasper, for introducing us to Crystal, at least the name Crystal Fighters. <laughs> that does 
indeed bring us to a close. We will be back next week with, we're very much hoping to have a special guest, Bob Spitz, one of the first American rock writers, uh, wrote early and huge books on the Beatles and Bob Dylan and others. He's in town researching his new enormous biography of Led Zeppelin. He's a very engaging fellow. So there's every chance, if you tune in next week, we'll be talking to Bob and we'll be listening to an audio interview with none other than Stevie Wonder, whose birthday is coming up in a week or so. So we will see you then. Thanks to both my esteemed colleagues, Mark, Jasper. We'll say toodle pip. (laughs) Bye. Toodle pip. Thus concludes the Rocks Back Pages podcast, hosted by Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I do this every day, I do this day.